Well, amen. It's great to have our hearts prepared to receive the Word of God this morning. And just been encouraged by the riches of where we're at in Romans chapter 5, thinking about the riches of God's gospel and recognizing God has blessed us with so many rich blessings. I was thinking about that theme, the idea that we have been given so much and we've been given more than what we can ask or imagine. I was reading this week a story of a young couple that received as an inheritance a family home. Family in Massachusetts had received their late grandfather's house. And owning a home already, they were kind of debating on whether or not to sell the house. And when thinking through that, they had this nagging thought in their mind. There was a family rumor that Grandpa had hidden money somewhere in the house. He had squirreled it away, but they had never been able to find it. The young couple, looking for this, hired contractors and carpenters to investigate the house, and after many countless attempts, none of them were able to find anything. The young couple heard of this guy by the name of Keith Willey, who lives in Connecticut, who describes himself as a detectorist, a man who finds hidden treasures. He is the guy you would call in if there is money hidden on your property or in your house. He is the guy who would discover it. So Willie traveled from Connecticut to the house in Massachusetts, bringing with him all of his uh, tools and he started scanning through the house and there was a rumor that there was something hidden in the attic and so he following that rumor went around pulled up a floorboard and there was a bank deposit box there when they opened it up it was $46,000 worth of crisp bills dated back from the 1930s and 50s wrapped in a wrappings of $500 each and it was, had been put there in 1958. That cash today would have been estimated in today's value of being about $400,000. Well beyond, of course, um, what the, the $46,000 was well beyond what the family expected to get. The bank notes were old. In fact, in many of the cases, they could sell the bank notes well beyond their face value because they are lost, basically, today. So this family, here is an example of receiving an inherited home and receiving more than they could ask or imagine. Not only was the crazy rumor of Grandpa true, but then he also had the physical monies. I think about that in regards to our spiritual lives in the gospel. God has promised to give us so much, and he's given us more than we can ask or imagine. He's done so much for us in salvation and rescuing us that he's blessed us beyond our wild imaginations. I think about it in terms of what Paul said to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, particularly in verse 3, when he says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even that phrase, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, it's something that doesn't make sense to the natural mind. 
In the rest of chapter 1 there of Ephesians, Paul goes on to describe our election, our predestination, our redemption, our adoption, our forgiveness of sins, our inheritance, and our sealing of the Holy Spirit. He describes these rich blessings that, that bless the believer beyond imagination. The invaluable. But I think about those blessings. Election, redemption, adoption, predestination, and inheritance. It's only inheritance that seems to have some kind of monetary value. And by the way, if you were to look at that passage, when he talks about the inheritance, uh, in Ephesians 1.18 says, he wants us to understand what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. could even be described of what God is going to receive as he brings the saints to himself. And all of these blessings... Few of them, if any, have description to monetary things. When we think about blessings, we think about in terms of silver and gold. We think about in terms of currency. We think about in terms of homes. We think about in terms of that which has a monetary value that we could spend. When God speaks of blessings, he speaks of something far greater, bigger, something far more meaningful. I mean, when God speaks about the reward of the believer, he speaks about the reward of being praised, well done, good and faithful servant. When he speaks about the, the believer's reward, he speaks about the believer's reward of service, what opportunities they'll have in glory. And I have to wonder in my mind, why would God speak in terms like this in regards to salvation? Not like man, when we think about money and, and material things, God speaks about the riches of his blessing, privilege, and praise. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20 just to set this up. I want to show you Revelation chapter 21, actually. Revelation 21. God describes the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven as it comes to earth. And he describes the marvelous riches of this kingdom. Notice how he describes it, starting in verse 10. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like that of a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall and twelve gates, and at the gates were twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had... Twelve foundation stones, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. Then he goes on and he describes the width and length and height of this city. And then he goes and describes what it's made of and its components. And it's made of a bunch of various stones and crystals, many of which I don't even know how to pronounce. But notice in verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold, like 
clear glass. Jump down to verse 21. And the twelve gates were like twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. What is described here is a place of opulent wealth, where gold is as common as dirt, where jewels are as common and as large as gates, pearls, again, as large as a gate. Why, speak, why not speak of material blessing? Because material blessing is so prominent in eternal life that it is as meaningless as dirt. What's more important, then, is to have peace with God. What's more important is to be reconciled to this God. What is more important is to have eternal life and to have that secured for all of eternity. More important than riches is your right to be able to be a partaker of this eternal reward. This sets up, if you turn back to Romans chapter 5, sets up for us, then, this idea that God looks at rewards in totally different categories than we do. He looks at blessings and riches in different categories, in different ways. And the first, as we saw last week in verse 1 and 2, the first reward or benefit, the blessing of the gospel is that we have a life-transforming peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an anticipation and a hope that comes when the the glory of God is revealed. The glory of God will come. It's been anticipated to come. It's been anticipated by the Old Testament prophets. It's been a day in which the prophets have been declaring for a long time. The prophets have been anticipating God's coming glory. The more that Israel had rebelled, the more that God had poured out His judgment upon Israel for her rebellion, the more that there had been the crying of the heart to say, God, when will all of this end? When will the judgment end? When will you bring peace to earth? When will you stop the rebellion? When will you judge the wicked? When will there finally be restoration? That has been on the hearts of the minds of people from very early on. And the prophets were sent to declare that the day of the Lord is coming. In Isaiah 13, verses 6 and 9, there was anticipation of the coming of the glory of God. And in fact, in that particular context, when we, can, when we start our study in Daniel, you're going to see that that particular context was a prophecy about Babylon. And then this, this prophecy that come, it was this. These words were stated by Isaiah For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13.9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger. Ezekiel 30 and verse 3, For the day of the Lord is near, even the day of the Lord is near. Joel 1.15, And it will come as destruction from the Almighty, for the day of the Lord is nearer. Over and over again, the prophets had declared, the day of the Lord is coming. Joel 2.11, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Even Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, in our canon, 
says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. Peter picks up that theme in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 and says that that day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. This anticipation of the coming of God's glory, the coming of his judgment, is where Paul took our attention in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 and says, We exult in the hope of the glory of God. When God comes and reveals his glory and brings judgment upon sin, it's in that moment, in that anticipation, we are there with exaltation. Why? Well, because we have peace with God. Because this judgment is not a time of judgment for us, It's not a time where God is pouring his wrath out upon us. It's a time of anticipation for us that we get to share in the glory of God. Now Paul turns his attention to the next benefit. We not only have peace with God, but the next benefit he starts to demonstrate here in verses 3 through 8. And is this, justification energizes the believer's worship in practice and in principle. The doctrine or the gospel of God energizes our worship in practice and in principle, or energizes our worship in practice and in doctrine. The more we understand the riches of God's work, the more that we are energized in response in worship and praise. That's what Paul writes, verses 3 through 8. Here's what he says. And not only this... But we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul builds on a key word at the end of verse 3, the word exalt. He builds on that word at the end of verse 2, and he builds on it into verse 3. When he says, and not only this, but we also, he is continuing his thought that he has laid out. He's continuing and building the idea, and he draws our attention to this idea of exalting. The word exalting is, as we said last week, means to boast, to have confidence. It is a different word that we would translate, we would think of the idea of praise or uh, exalt. This is the idea of boasting, to have confidence a confident joy. We, in this case, are boasting, as he says, in our sufferings, in our tribulations. We boast in this. Just as we boast in the anticipation of the revealing of the glory of God, we also boast in our afflictions. This is the first part, our Christian practice. We will also see then in verse 6 through 8, the second aspect of our boasting, our exaltation, is in the Christian doctrine or principle. Notice this first part, the boasting in the Christian practice. 
says, we boast, we exalt in our tribulations. We have confident joy in the midst of our tribulations, is what he says here. Now, we need to understand this. What does he mean? What do we mean by tribulations? What do you mean by sufferings? What he's saying is the present difficulties and afflictions that we face are the cause of great confidence for the believer. Now, let me just begin by going to Peter's um, gospel. If you turn over to Peter in 1 Peter 4, our scripture reading this morning. Because I think Peter, in 1 Peter 4 there, in the scripture reading, gave us a broader context to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. Because he says basically the same thing. 1 Peter 4.12 and following. Notice what uh, Peter said again. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Notice how Peter describes this. He, he describes the difficulties we're facing as fiery ordeal, as something that would be strange that we would be taken into. You ever wonder at times, you know, again, why, is, why are Christians looked upon today as strange, as different? In fact, more and more we just declare natural biology, that there is a real woman and a real man and they're distinguished from each other, the more and more strange we will be in light of today's ideology. And he says, Peter says, don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal. The, this would be the increasing of suffering and difficulty. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Peter's saying, look, embrace these difficulties, embrace them with joy and rejoicing, knowing that in the day of the revealing of Christ, the revealing of his glory, you're going to have exaltation. Verse 14, now here's the category. Here's where he's describing where our sufferings are. But if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. What is it? Don't suffer because you've done evil. You're not to be suffering because you were a murderer or thief or an evildoer or troublesome that because you were projecting evil, but be reviled because you believed in the name of Christ and you proclaim Christ and you trust in the work of God. Rejoice if that is where your suffering comes from. Why? Notice how Peter in verse 17 frames up the whole perspective for us. How we face our afflictions. He says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. For if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now listen, here's how Peter frames it up. 
He says, those afflictions that you face in life, those trials, those difficulties, those persecutions, the personal sufferings that you face are an opportunity for you to realize two things. One, judgment has begun now. And two, the glory of God is going to come and we're going to be in it. If it's hard for us right now, enduring with difficulty, what's going to be for those who've rejected God? It's going to be far worse. The present sufferings, the present difficulties are nothing in compared to the future judgment that God is going to bring. That's what Peter states there. That's why verse 18. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. What is Peter's encouragement here? Peter's encouragement is embrace the physical trials, the difficulties, the natural suffering of this world as a realization that God's judgment is beginning. Again, this isn't a judgment unto condemnation. This is God's This isn't retribution. This is God working in us to produce praise and exaltation. This is what Paul picks up on. Turn back to Romans 5. It's this idea of facing affliction and difficulty with endurance that Paul picks up on here in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. The idea is this, and this would be the... um, now, this would be the component in the gospel that is not preached today. The gospel preached today is, believe God, he has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel manifested here is, believe God, he has a wonderful plan for your life, and it is to help you endure through suffering and difficulty. That doesn't sell the same way. Embrace God, because embracing God means this, you're going to face afflictions. You're going to face suffering. Notice what he says there in verse 13. Not only this, or verse 3, not only this, we exalt in our tribulations. The word tribulation there is a word that has broad meaning. It has on one end of the scale, it means the suffering that comes in the context of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.28. Notice 1 Corinthians 7.28 is where this word is used. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 7.28. But if any of you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But notice, yet such will have affliction or trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. Young people who are not married, remind yourself of this. As soon as you seek to find that perfect spouse, you are bringing affliction to them. (laughs) And they are bringing affliction to you. That's what I said to my wife when we wanted to get married. Can I bring affliction into your life? (laughs) She said yes. I mean, it was just amazing. This is the one end of the scale, affliction and difficulty that comes with two sinners having to live together and walk in godliness when they are indeed sinners. When one is being unkind and you have to respond in kindness. When one is being unlovely and you have to be lovely. When one is impatient and you have to be patient. 
to demonstrate the affliction enduring under their weakness, their immaturity. That's one end of the scale of affliction. The other end of the scale of affliction, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 33. The same word is used there in Hebrews 10, 33. It says this, starting verse 32, says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. The word tribulations there is the, our word afflictions. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. This is physical suffering, physical afflictions at this end of the spectrum. So that this same word goes from the having to be godly in the face of ungodliness all the way to the end of being personally, uh, physically mistreated. That's our word tribulation back here in Romans chapter 5. You can turn back to Romans 5 and verse 3. We face tribulations. Not only do we face tribulations, but we face tribulations with a confident joy, with exaltation, with confidence. Not the personal suffering that comes from being immature and sinful ourselves, but the personal suffering that comes from being godly in a godless world. The kind of suffering that comes when you're ridiculed for doing what is right. You're mocked for what you believe. You're rejected because you stand for godliness. The kind of affliction that comes when you're misrepresented. Your motives are misrepresented. Your message is misrepresented. Your life is misrepresented. Even your teaching is misrepresented. It's that kind of affliction that you endure because you believe the truth that may lead to even physical persecution or it may simply just be mockery, rejection. Whatever it is, it is a kind of tribulation that comes because you're practicing godliness. For Peter... When he wrote his words in 1 Peter 4, it was just on the cusp of Nero's persecution from Rome where Christians would be gathered up, arrested, and then used as torches in Nero's gardens. The kind of fiery ordeal that would be among them which would lead to their own life, the giving of their own life. Paul says in the face of this kind of tribulation, this kind of persecution, this kind of suffering, we face it with exaltation. We face it with confidence. And it moves, and here's the key what we're going to get to, is that we can, how can we move from that kind of affliction to the end of verse 4 to hope? How does affliction and difficulty and suffering lead to hope? And Paul builds the case here. So in verse 3, it starts that we have, all right, we're exalting this tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and brings about endurance. Literally, while we're suffering in doing what is right, it produces within us an endurance, a strength, a steadfastness. The gospel leads us to move into this kind of steadfast, enduring life. To remain steady no matter what's happening around us. Why? Because the gospel message doesn't change and the difficulties of life aren't changing. We are enduring through the difficulties because we are anticipating that glory to come. Yeah, so maybe in the moment 
the affliction that's upon me, caused either by a wayward spouse or a rejecter in the world, that difficulty is nothing in light of the glory to come, in light of the riches of what we've been given in Jesus Christ, the riches of having peace with God. So we endure through the difficulties and we persevere season after season. And I love this idea of perseverance is that no matter what is coming on, you are enduring through it steadfast, steady, certain. Let's move on to verse 4 then. It moves from a perseverance to proven character. Of this phrase, proven character. It's translated, this word is used seven times in the New Testament, twice here in this context. But just notice a couple times it's used. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Another time that this same word is used in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul uses this word m- multiple times here in 2 Corinthians, but the first time here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 says this, For to this end also I wrote... So that I might, here's the phrase, put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. The phrase, put you to the test, is our phrase, to know your proven character. In fact, if you have the Legacy Standard Bible, that's exactly how it translates it. For this reason I wrote to you, that I might know your proven character. What kind of character do you have? What, What is tested and proven to be right? That's the idea. The word is used again in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8 and verse 2. Notice it there. It's translated this way in the New American, that in a great ordeal of affliction, that ordeal of affliction is is our word translated here. LSB translated as testing. If you have an ESV, it translates as severe test. That is the idea of a great severe test. Their abundance of joy. That is, in this particular case, the context was the giving of the Macedonians that in great suffering they gave richly. They were tested in the midst of their, of, uh, their suffering. They were tested to give. In fact, here's the idea how I like to translate it as the idea of a character testing afflictions. So why they were in the middle of a character testing affliction They gave of their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowing in wealth of their liberality. They demonstrated their character in the affliction. It's used again in in, uh, chapter 9 and verse 13. Um, Look at chapter 9 and verse 13, 2 Corinthians. It says this, uh, because of the proof given by this ministry, that is the word proof, is our exact same character, uh, or same word, proven character. That's why the, the LSB actually translated it that way, uh, 2 Corinthians 9.13, by, because of the proven character given by this ministry. This is the idea. If we can turn back to Romans chapter 5, the idea is one who is suffering in afflictions, persevering under it, leads to a proven character. A steadiness of faith, a steadiness of character that endures season after season. They are a proven person. 
And I want you to to see that this is anchored in the riches of the gospel. Justification leads to saints that are transformed in character and they're tested and proven. Remind people of this when you preach the gospel to them and embrace it. God is going to test you and prove you. He's going to prove the remarkable work in you. He has to because it leads to this last quality and characteristic. It produces then hope. When you have proven character, it leads to hope. A hope and confidence that God is doing his great work in you. A hope and a confidence that God is at work. He's taking you from an affliction to persevere through it, to form character to give you established hope and confidence that you are His, that He is at work, that you have the hope that indeed on the day of the revealing of God and His glory, you're going to be standing there in peace with God. That's what we want. We live in a day and age where people have less and less assurance, a day and age where people have less and less hope, when there's less and less meaning of being part of the community of God and less and less significance of being uh, in the truth. And why is it? Because we have moved away from this very chain of the work of the gospel, of enduring through tribulations and sufferings, leading to a, a character that is tested and proven so that hope is rich and alive. Maybe you lack assurance. Maybe you lack hope because you have no proven character. And you have new proven character because you're not enduring under suffering. There is a connection between afflictions and hope. And that connection, they're inseparably linked through that chain of enduring through it, improving character. That's why a church today abandoning the pursuit of sanctification abandons all assurance. They abandon all hope. They can have no confidence. Because they are not seeing the work of the gospel transform them and lead them through the difficulties. The first aspect that Paul draws our attention to then here, and he, and he kind of wraps it all up in verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope is not meaningless. And oftentimes in the midst of a physical suffering and some kind of persecution or difficulty, we want to escape. But Paul's saying there is a value to this hope that comes with the love of God poured out in our hearts. There is a value in the life-transforming work of the gospel in our hearts and lives that gives us confidence before God, that gives us encouragement. It's not, again, this is not going to disappoint you. It's not going to be meaningless to put in the effort and the work because you're going to see in firsthand testimony of the grace of God and His love ruling and reigning in your hearts. It says, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What you're going to learn and we're going to see, particularly when you get into chapters 8 and chapter 6 of Romans, 
is the power of the Spirit of God to sanctify us and move us along. The presence of the Spirit of God to help us endure through difficulties. The work of God's Spirit to give us understanding, to remind us that we're not a slave to the uh, sin and to the old man. We're now a slave to God. We are bound to the Spirit of God. We have God's working in us and through us, which gives us confidence, which we didn't have before, which the law could not produce. It's this abiding work of the Spirit within us to give us understanding and to sanctify us. Paul says here that this is the first aspect of our exaltation and confidence comes in the practice of living out the gospel. But it leads us to the second aspect of our exaltation and joy and confidence and tribulation is because of the doctrine. Notice what he says in verses 6 through 8. We have this principle basis for our confidence. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'd say that these are some of the most powerful words for the pursuit of sanctification in all the Scripture. These are the most powerful words in the pursuit of endurance, in the pursuit of of bearing up under affliction, in the pursuit of hope in all the Word of God. Notice what Paul describes here. While we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were incapable and unwilling enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's not while you were on your best moment, in your best moment, on your best day. It wasn't when you were looking your best, when you were at your best moment, at your highest place of success in life, at that time in which you demonstrated yourself most capable and most useful to him. He he then saw that and said, okay, now I'm going to send my son. It wasn't at the moment when we were at our loveliest, when we were at our best moment, it was the moment you were at your worst. We were, as he said there, helpless, that is, without strength, without ability, without any means to accomplish it. And we were ungodly. We were unholy, unrighteous. We were enemies of God. At that moment when we were incapable and enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. Then he kind of builds on in verse 7. Someone might do something crazy like this, for a good guy, for a righteous man. You had a good leader, a good man. We might lay down your life. But to lay down your life for a Hitler, for a Putin, for a, you know, pick your enemy of the day, to lay down your life for that individual, you're out of your minds. And yet, he says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
It is this doctrinal truth that should be reigning on our hearts and minds whenever we're facing affliction and difficulty. Because no matter what we face, we go back to this and say, am I being asked to do more than what Christ did? In the practice of obedience here, in the facing of this trial, in the facing of this difficulty, am I being asked in this moment to do more than what Jesus Christ did? Am I dying for an enemy? No, that's what Christ did. No, I'm dying for my spouse, the one I've committed love to and committed my life to and committed to serve my whole life, so I'm not being asked to do the same. Am I being uh, asked to lay down my life? Yeah, I'm being asked to lay down my life, and Christ did more than that. He actually shed blood. I'm not shedding blood. Am I being asked to love somebody in their weakest moment? Yeah, that's exactly the condition in which God had called me to show love. See, the power here in the pursuit of sanctification, the pursuit of godliness, is the realization that it is anchored in the gospel, that whatever we're being asked to do to pursue righteousness is nothing different than what Christ has done on our behalf. This energizes the believer, strengthens the believer in perseverance and godliness causing the believer to continue to strive and to face those afflictions and to face them with endurance and to move with endurance to a tested character, to move to an increasing assurance and hope and confidence because they are anchored in doctrinal truth. We're doing nothing different than what Christ has done for us. This is the gospel that we've embraced. God loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were helpless. The gospel energizes our praise and it strengthens our practice and our understanding, our doctrine, so that we can live uprightly in this present day and age. I was thinking about this for the church, for Saving Grace Bible Church. I was thinking about how this works out in our midst and it has worked out in our body in so many different ways. I've seen many of you working through difficulties and dark providences of life, facing life-altering illnesses, and facing those kind of illnesses in a way that demonstrates the glory of God. I've seen those face the long-term COVID illness, and in fact, in the first hour, Peter came back after having spent nearly five months in the hospital with COVID. He was back worshiping with us this Sunday. I've seen those facing undiagnosed illness, those facing cancer and other illnesses, and embrace the gospel in the midst of it, desiring to glorify God. I've seen this where they've operated in such a way that as they're facing the afflictions and difficulties of life, they're facing it with an unquenchable hope, facing it with a greater joy of what's next as they can demonstrate the riches of God's love to those who are undeserving. And while they're in the press, they're loving others. I've been, many times, I've gone to hospital beds and gone to homes and I've sat down and I'm thinking, I'm coming to minister to you and they're ministering to me. It's like, no, it's not supposed to work that way. I'm supposed to be the one giving you joy and giving you encouragement and you're lifting me up here. It's because of their great faith. Because they love the Lord and they are anticipating the riches of God's glory. And God has used many of these individuals 
in the face of their suffering, to minister to unbelieving doctors and nurses, to believe, to be a testimony to the riches of God's grace. They stand there enduring through the afflictions. We have those dear saints in our midst, those like Miss Peggy Patterson, who I can't look over here right now, Peggy, because you were faithful to minister even through the midst of your own personal sufferings. Even as we were heading through COVID and even as there was difficulties coming upon us, there was a faith that said, I want to be with God's people. I want to be around the truth. I don't need hand-holding. I don't need you to come along and minister to me. I'm going to minister to you because I know the grace of God. I said to the first hour, Peggy, and you can correct me later, but you were probably disappointed that COVID didn't take you home because God didn't, uh, you had to wait longer to get to glory. There was a joy. It says, I'm not going to run and hide from difficulty. I'm going to embrace difficulty because there is a faith, confidence in God's work, which leads to, a, again, a testing and a perseverance and a proven character that gives encouragement and confidence and hope and assurance that can't be taken away. Think about this in the context of marriages as well. If I can encourage in marriage, as we said, that a range of affliction goes from marriage to trials. You know, I joke around with my wife too, saying, yeah, I can't believe when we got married what we didn't know, uh, what we didn't know we would get into and the difficulties. Um, but I know this, I have brought affliction into her life. I have brought difficulties. And I've seen and experienced the grace of God. So maybe you are in one of those marriages. You are struggling, and it is hard. And it's hard to wake up in the morning and say, all right, got to show love today. But what if it's about you growing in maturity, and it's about God wanting to demonstrate his love in you and through you, and maybe he wants to be a blessing to your spouse to show them love, even though they don't deserve it. And in that moment, you remind yourself, yeah, I didn't deserve the gospel anyways. I didn't deserve to be saved. I was unlovely. I was unrighteous. And he saved me at that time. So right now is a perfect opportunity for me to demonstrate the riches of the gospel to this undeserving sinner. And maybe you will turn around and see that they respond to that grace and show the same back to you. And you recognize that this you are undeserving point in all this is this, that the riches of God's gospel is immensely practical. And the church abandoning the gospel abandons its hope, abandons its joy, abandons its confidence. But for us, we go back and we say, no, God, Lord, produce these things in us. We have, we're crazy enough to say, give us the afflictions. Because I know with those afflictions, the end of it is going to be hope. It's going to be encouragement. And when I face these afflictions, I face them with the realization that when I was unlovely, he died for me. When I was helpless, he rescued. So that we then have been rescued by God. I pray that as we think through all this, that our hearts are captivated by the riches of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ so that it works out in our practice, so that we would have that kind of proven character and hope and joy, that we would be able to say, I take confidence 
in the coming of Christ. I boast in it. Not because it's a boasting in my strength and my power, but a boasting in the riches of the glory of Christ at work, ruling and reigning in our hearts and lives. Well, that's the second benefit of the gospel. Next week, we'll see the third and final one. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Father, beyond what we can ask or imagine, the character and the nature of faith working in our hearts and lives is more than what can be produced by the natural man. It's more than what the, our natural man would pursue. It's the demonstrations of the riches of your power, the demonstrations of the riches of your grace at work in the heart of transformed sinners. And the true power of the gospel is on display when there is no earthly reason for us to, give joy, to have joy, and we have it. No earthly reason for us to personally sacrifice, and we do. No earthly reason for us to give mercy when we've been mistreated, but we do. Because we have experienced that love and mercy and patience and kindness and long-suffering demonstrated through Christ, and that rules in our hearts, so we seek to demonstrate that glory here. And we pray that as we do this, day in and day out, that we would see the rich fruits of the peaceful fruit of righteousness on display around us. Relationships transformed, broken relationships restored, ungodliness put off, righteousness practiced, so that in each way, in small bits, we would taste the riches of your glory even now and live with greater anticipation and greater hope of what is to be revealed so that when the glory of Christ and the glory of God is manifest, we will be there on the front row praising and exalting and boasting in the power of God on display, not because of our greatness, but because of your greatness. And so when we are weak and vulnerable to give in to the flesh, may our hearts and minds run back to the gospel, meditating richly on these truths which we have embraced in Christ Jesus so that the joy of Christ would rule and reign within us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.